We know that there's a famous machlekes beishamay and beishilal about how to light neiros Hanukkah. Beis Hillel is of the opinion, and we paskin, of course, like him, or like that school of Beis Hillel, that we start on the first night with one candle, and every subsequent night we light an additional candle, until on the final night we have eight candles burning. The Shita of Beis Shammai is the opposite. Beishamai holds that we start off on the first night of Hanukkah lighting eight candles, and the second night we light seven candles, and the third night we light six, until we arrive at the last night with one candle. And the Gemara gives different basic reasons for this. Um, the first, and I guess the main reason, is that Beishilal holds that it's Keneged, Yamim, Hanechnasim and basically the the days that are coming I think I just mixed that up but Beishamai holds that you have to light the entirety of the nights of Hanukkah on the first night on the first night you light all of the all the candles that will be coming for all the days of Hanukkah so the first night is eight. The seven night, second night is seven because there's only seven nights remaining, etc. And Basil says, no, you have on the first night of Hanukkah, you keep it simple, you light one, the second night two, etc. And then, of course, there's the additional reason the Gemara says about Ma'il Makaidesh and Kneged Parim Shelchag, which we're not going to discuss today, but in general, just as a very, on a very basic level, the Machlekes between Beisham and Beisilel comes down to whether or not you light one and then two and then three, or do you light eight and then seven and then six. And I understand very well the Shita of Beisilo, because it's only natural that on the first night you light one candle. That's what they did in the Beis HaMikdash. The Minaira lit for one day. And then the second night we light a second candle, as if to say that the miracle grew in stature and in and it's an amazing nature to be able to constantly have a gidol on They couldn't believe it. The second night, it's still burning. The third night, it's still burning. The fourth night, it's still burning. That growing, that escalation of wonderment at the miracle is really reflected by the amount of candles that we're lighting each day of Hanukkah. Until on the eighth night, it's like wonder of wonders. We're still here. We're still lighting the candles that were burning until today. Beishamashita is a little bit harder for me to understand. Because what exactly are you doing? You're lighting on the first night eight candles. Why? Because that is the amount of the totality of days of Hanukkah. That's the amount of of lights, of nights that the candles burned for. Okay, and then the second night, seven, and then six. I don't really understand it so well. I don't understand what Beis Shammai's point is in having a decreasing amount of candles and basically giving away the whole show. You're giving away the whole, the whole story. You're, you're, it's like a, what do they, what do they call it today? A, a plot spoiler? You're, you're like one of these guys that tell you exactly what's going to be at how the movie ends. Okay, you're telling me on the first night already that there's going to be eight nights that it's going to last for. 
It's not a, that's not a, a natural thing, in my mind at least, for Beishamay to do. And I'd like to use this question as a, uh, as a platform to engage in some hashkafa about life and then, and specifically Hanukkah, and perhaps that's a kavana that we could take away from Beishamay. We know that a Jew has unlimited potential. Now, we could speak forever about Gedele Yisrael and how amazing their abilities to produce was. You take people that were able to write Svarim, but not just one safer, not just two Svarim, but entire bookshelves of Svarim. One man with brilliant scholarship, with erudition, with marshalling millions of sources. The Jews' potential is unlimited in scope. The Chassam Seifer, if you look at the writings of the Chassam Seifer on everything, the Chubas that he wrote, and on Chumash, and on, on Halacha, and on um, Minhagim, he wrote poetry. He wrote, there's nothing that the Chassam Slaver didn't write on Kolotai And this was one man with potential that's beyond our, our understanding. A man like the Stechemed, who wrote a multi volume encyclopedic work, the Stechemed, and he explained how he was able to be Zaycha, to having such, such siyat deshmaya, a very interesting story, actually, about a, uh, he was learning in a kailo, and uh, a young married man, and there was a, his hasmada was incredible, but he wasn't absolutely brilliant, according to his own testimony. And there was another fellow in the kailo that was very jealous of him, that why is he such a massman and why can't I be such a massman? He's getting all the limelight and not me. So what this Kailo guy did was terrible. He basically, there was a cleaning lady in the base medrash of the Kailo and he offered her a sizable sum of money if she would accuse the Stechemed of having done something inappropriate to her. Can you imagine such a thing? And she took the money, and Shitaka came one day and screamed out of the, the pantry and said that the Stechemed, you know, attempted to do something to her, and everybody started going crazy, and, uh, you know, and it was a big, big brouhaha, obviously, big scandal, everybody was talking about it, Major Chil Hashem. The head of the Kailal, the one who oversaw the Kailal, Trusted the Stechemed, but he was in a very difficult situation. He f- fired this, uh, this, this girl that worked for the Kailo. This cleaning girl, he fired her. And after a certain amount of time, she needed, um, she needed money. All that money that that Kailo guy gave her ran out. She needed money, and she went to the Stechemed and said that if you can get me back my job, then I will admit the truth. I will say that, you know, this person hired me to falsely accuse you of doing an unmentionable deed. And the Stechemet obviously was very, uh, 
interested in, in getting his reputation back to a certain degree. But on the other hand, he was afraid of the Chil Hashem that would ensue, that a, an Avrech and Kailal would, would resort to such a, a low, despicable accusation. And so what he did was, he said, I will arrange for you to be rehired. I will try my best to use my pole with the head of the Kailal to get you rehired, but on one condition, that you never reveal to anyone what really happened. And he got her back her, her job, and, and he said, he writes in one of his farms that from that time on, he found that the Mayanis of Chachma, the wellsprings of wisdom, just completely blew open in his mind. He was Zeicha Tesiat Deshmaya, and he was able to write this Nechemed. I don't know, it's, 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 it's a massive set of psalms, 17 volumes, I think it is, or 25 volumes, depending on the, on the different, uh, typesetting of the, of the Stechem, but it's a massive, it should have been done by, uh, you know, a team of, uh, maybe a hundred scholars, and it was done by one man. The Igris Meisha, we know, is like, uh, the Igris Meisha, the Dibris Meisha, the Darash Meisha, one man produced so much it's amazing. And the list goes on and on. A Jew has unlimited potential to accomplish great things, to build and to explore and to write and to, uh, to do anything that he wants. And it's not just limited to a Haredi Jew. It's not just limited to Shemir Torah Mitzvahs. Obviously we know that Lahavdil, Jews in general have this ability to exceed all expectations. Jews are, I think, less than 1% of the worldwide population, maybe less than a half a percent. And the Nobel Prizes, I think, are way more than 10% that are going to the Jews. Much more than that, probably. I didn't get the exact numbers, but suffice it to say, we are way, way out of our proportional you know, expectations in terms of Nobel Prizes. You see what's going on today in Eretz Yisrael, the startup nation, small country with how many people in it already. And they're able to really compete, go toe-to-toe with all the great nations, industrial superpowers, and produce technology and, and in science, healthcare, all of the major technological breakthroughs, not all, but many of them, are coming out of this small country. And the world knows it. The world notices it. The world is very eager to um, invest in, in Eretz Yisrael because of that. Just You take the ways that was an Israeli invention. It literally changed, I think, everybody's life. I don't have one, but, you know, but uh, if I would, it would change my life. Um, but how, how a Jewish person has the ability to do amazing things. And there's a reason for this. Why is it that the Jew is so ambitious and so able to accomplish such great things in the fields of medicine, in the fields of business, in law, in science, in chemistry, in, in, in mechanics, 
in every field that they set their sights on in banking and finance, they are they are always on the top. You know, whatever the anti-Semites say about the Jews happens to be true. When they say that the Jews own Hollywood, it's true. The Jews do own Hollywood. They do. There's no denying it. You could say it's not nice that they're saying it, that they're pointing it out, but it happens to be true. That the Jews own Wall Street, it's true. That the Jews own the medical field. Obviously, there are plenty of non-Jews in all these fields, I know. But if you look at the history of all of these industries, you'll find that at the core and at the forefront of all of these things, whether it's for good or for evil, it's the Jew. Why is it that the Jew has this knack to always be the overachiever in the room, to always be able to accomplish and to break through any ceiling that he, that, that, that's before him. And the answer is very simple. The answer is that every single Jew has within him a super turbocharged neshama. And this neshama is like a, a burning ball of fire that needs greatness that understands that it was put on this world for a few years to accomplish tremendous things. And so it sets its sights so high, so impossibly far, and it's not happy until it attains what it wants. Now, the truth is that what all our neshamas really want, as the Mesul Sisharim points out, is really to do the Ratzon Hashem. Our neshamas were not necessarily designed to win Nobel Prizes. Our neshamas were designed to be able to use that greatness, that creativity, to serve the Rabbi Yishalem, to daven with deep kavana, to learn with amelos, with yigiyah, to be able to do chesed, to build yeshivas, to build shuls, to build mikvais, to build beis yakovs, to build chadarim, to build kailim, to be able to do greatness for the world at large. But, in any event, Jews are very productive because the neshama needs it to be that way. The neshama is not happy. It doesn't get satisfaction unless it's doing more and more and more and accomplishing greater things. And it's never satisfied, the the Jewish neshama, never. The word simcha is etymologically related to the word semicha. Sadi memches and sin memches are the same word, basically. A, a, samach, a, a sin and a, and a tzadi are one of those words, letters that could be interchanged on a certain level. What does that mean? That simcha, you want to be truly happy? People go to Disneyland to be happy. And... Disneyland is the, the last place in the world if you want to be happy. I think you've all heard my tire already. But I, I went many times to Disney World, Disneyland, Great Adventure. These are like places that are really deeply depressing. If you want to be happy, stay away from them. It's very expensive to get in there. And it's not just me as a, as a mashkiach, maybe thinking, okay, he's too from, he doesn't, he can't enjoy it. But, you know, I just spoke to a guy that, that's working on my house. He took his family to... To Disney World, and I asked him, "Did you have a good time?" He says, "Awful." I said, "Like, wow, he, you know, Baruch Shakivanti. Like, why is it awful?" He says, "It cost a fortune. Like, my whole shmuz, my whole vad, he took. 
So it's, it costs a fortune. The kids are never happy. There's lines all over the place. You know, it's boiling hot. Uh, you can't, uh, you know, the kids are tired and they're hungry and they're without. It's, it's just like not enjoyable. What makes a person happy? Where is happiness? Happiness is tzmicha. Simcha is from being tzimeach. When a person feels that they are accomplishing, when a person feels that there is growth, that there is tzmicha, that I'm able to flourish, I'm able to do great things, I'm productive. When you feel productivity, that's when you're happy. Sitting on a beach and thinking that's going to make me happy all day, that's the worst thing in the world for a person. You could do it for a day. Everybody needs a vacation. Everybody needs a chance to chill once in a while, to detox a little bit from the craziness of life. It's very important, but whenever I go on a vacation, I'm like trying to relax for like uh, maybe a half a day, and then i gotta, I got to be busy again. i got to do some work. I can't do it. I just can't do it. Because that's not happiness. It might be relaxation, but don't confuse relaxation with happiness. Happiness means that I'm feeling productive. I'm feeling that I'm doing... It might be hard work. A person might be very, you know, busy. A person might be traveling all over the world. A person might be very busy in a, in a lab trying to, you know, discover certain cures to cancer. But that's happiness for him because he feels he's accomplishing something. That's the root of happiness. Happiness is not relaxation. Happiness is not going on vacations. Happiness is not going on roller coaster rides. Happiness is the feeling that a person has inside when they are touching potential, when they are fulfilling what they need inside to be doing. When they're busy, when they are, when they are meeting goals and fulfilling deep-rooted aspirations in life, that's when a person is happy. And when a person is not industrious, when a person is just simply coasting and chilling and lazy... He might be watching fun stuff, playing video games all day, but that's not happiness. It's the opposite. I heard a great vart from Rabbi Ephraim Waxman Shlita, who spoke at the Aguda Convention this year. I saw a video of it, a phenomenal drasha he gave. And he said one vart that I, I had to repeat to you. He said a vart like this, there's a medrash... In Mitzrayim, it says that the Egyptians were really diabolical people. And they wanted to really embitter Klal Yisrael by Yimaras Chayim. What did they do? What was their plan? I think we're all familiar with this medrash. They gave the men the jobs that women normally do, and they gave the women the jobs that men normally do. So the women had to nebuch schlep bricks and pave the cement and do uh, you know all these difficult, very labor-intensive, heavy work. And the men, whatever you know, whatever women used to do back then, they used to, they did needlepoint and they did maybe they cooked and they cleaned and whatever it was that women did back then. That's what the men did. 
and the, and the men and the women were doing really hard work. They were schlepping and they were building and they were hammering. And not only that, says the Medrash, but a zakain, an old man, was given the work of a young man. So an old man, you'd have an, a 90-year-old man, and he, Nebuch, has to also be schlepping together with the women all the bricks and the mortars and the this and that. And the young men, young, robust guys like yourself, they would be like carrying maybe like pieces of paper like this all day and like, you know, very things that an old man would do, a 90-year-old man, that's what they would, that would, that's what they would be doing. And that was terrible Achzarius on behalf of Mitzrayim. So Rabbi Waxman asked a very basic question. I understand the fact that it's very disgusting of the Egyptians to give women this labor-intensive work of a man. That's very terrible. It's terrible to see an old man never have to schlep and do the work of a young man. That's terrible. But why is it so terrible for a man to have to do some needlepoint? Why is it so bad for a young man like yourself to have to carry around paper? That's terrible. That's a, I, that's a great job. I would love to do that. All day, all, all I have to do is go like this all day. That's, that's cruelty on behalf of the Egyptians. But from the Medrash, it sounds like it was cruelty all across the board. Vice dice. You see from here, he said, that the worst punishment that a person can have is not fulfilling his potential. There is nothing worse than me all day going like this. If this is all I'm doing, I'm filing, I could be doing big things, I could be building skyscrapers, and instead all you're allowing me to do is to do some needlepoint, and I know that I'm wasting all of my potential, that's achzarius. That's cruelty that, uh, that the Egyptians wanted to impose on the human soul. A person needs to fulfill his potential. And that potential is so great that the more that we are able to accomplish in life, we'll be happy. We'll feel the simcha, that's tzmicha. But if a person's not accomplishing, if a person's just like doing nothing, and you think, okay, I, I, I beat the system. I was able to not do anything. All I do all day is go fishing. I'm able to, you know, I had a... I retired young, I'm sitting poolside with a pina colada in hand, reading the Wall Street Journal, watching my stocks go up, and you think that that's going to make you happy? That's misery. Because a human being has to accomplish. The worst thing for a person to do is to retire. So many people in America think that the American dream is, I'm going to work, I'm going to make a lot of money, I'm going to retire young. That's the American dream. And what are you going to do then? What are you going to do once you retire? Well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to retire. I don't want to work. I'm going to tell my boss to take the job. When a person retires, his mind begins to, to just, you know, dissipate. It just, it just disintegrates. It becomes nothing. It becomes mush. All of your talents, all of your ambitions, all of your industriousness, just basically, you're, you're hanging hanging it up on a, on a shelf, and, and that's it. It's gone. And what happens then? I have no happiness. Happiness, the definition of if you're going to retire, you're going to sit and learn. If you're going to retire and write Svarim, you're going to retire and make plans for yourself to finish Shas and Paiskim. Okay, that's amazing. 
but just to retire to watch the prices right all day, that's not, that's not, that's, 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 that's misery. That's achzarius that you're putting on yourself. Last month, in October, October 24th, there was an auction in Eretz Yisrael. In Eretz Yisrael, there are a few major auction houses, and, you know, as you know, I'm very into Judaica, I'm into svar, old Svarim, and into, uh, into Chafetzim of Gedele Yisrael, and... So I, I follow these auctions pretty closely, and I know a lot of the people that are very involved in these auctions. And it's a very interesting thing. If you ever want to see something really interesting and you have time, you go to one of these auctions, and it's, uh, you, know, you can even watch it sometimes online, and uh, you see it's a very exciting experience. My father, Ola Vashalom, used to take me as already a young boy to, these, to Sotheby's and all the very fancy auction houses, and to see the the massive amounts of money that, that were spent by these collectors and by these uh, you know, museums, universities, to buy these precious, precious items. So there's one auction house in Eretz Yisrael it's, uh, called Winners. And uh, it's, uh, it's run by a, by a from guy. It's owned by a from guy. I think he learns half a day, if I'm not mistaken. And the auction before this one not the one I'm talking about. He sold a, a few letters from Albert Einstein, and they went for a few thousand dollars. This past auction, he auctioned off one letter from Albert Einstein, and they were expecting it to go for anywhere between five and eight thousand dollars. The bidding and a lot, it wasn't all bidding in the room, it was also online and on the phone, it was very exciting. The bidding normally takes a few minutes until the thing is sold, if it sells at all. This bidding took no less than 25 minutes. It's a lot of time to bid up something. If you ever hear on Rosh Hashanah Kippur, you know, maybe if, you, if the bidding goes very long, you know that there's a lot of money that's being made. What was supposed to sell for $5,000 at best sold for $1.3 million, one letter from Albert Einstein. Now, what did it say on this letter? What was the big chachma on this letter that somebody in Europe on a phone spent $1.3 million on? So it's an interesting story, which also obviously added to the, to the allure of this, of this particular piece, that... He was in Japan. The year was um, 1922. He was traveling to Japan, and he found out that he was the winner of the 1921 Nobel Prize in Physics. And that's when his fame began to really take off. As you know, He's an icon. Everyone knows Albert Einstein. If you want to have a picture of somebody that's brilliant, the icon would be Albert Einstein. So he was in Japan. He found out that he was the Nobel Prize winner of physics. And 
he all of a sudden here he was in Japan and he became famous overnight. Like people were snapping his picture, paparazzi started following his every move, and the papers were writing about him. And he checked into a hotel in Tokyo. And the bellhop brought up his suitcases. And he didn't have money to pay the bellhop, Mr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein. So what he did was, he says, listen, I don't have money. I want to give you a tip. I appreciate what you did for me. I'm going to give you something, a letter, piece of paper, a stationery from the hotel in, in, in Japan, from this hotel. I'm going to write something on it. And if you hold on to it, after many years, I promise you that it's going to be a lot more valuable than any tip that I would have given you today. So the bellhop said, fine. And Albert Einstein wrote like two or three lines in German, which was his mother tongue, on this piece of paper, in the stationery. And this is a piece of stationery that was given over eventually from that bellhop to his nephew. The nephew found out that this auction house in Israel was selling letters from Albert Einstein from that previous auction. They, they engaged the winner's auction house to be the one in charge of selling this letter. There's also another letter with it, another story. But, and this is what became a $1.3 million piece of paper. Quite a, a big tip. What did it say on this letter? What did he write? He wrote something that obviously was very important and that people would be interested in spending a lot of money on. What he wrote on this letter was, and they were billing it as Einstein's theory of happiness. Okay, so here you have Albert Einstein. We know that he has a theory of relativity. E equals mc squared. He also has a theory of happiness. And this is it. A calm and humble life will bring more happiness than the pursuit of success and the constant restlessness that comes with it. Say it again. A calm and humble life will bring more happiness than the pursuit of success and the constant restlessness that comes with it. When I first read this line of Albert Einstein's theory of happiness, I thought this was Mamish Atarudik Ashkafa. He's telling us to live a simple life, to live a life like the Chavetz Chaim, you know, very modest, very simple, calm, without the paparazzi, without all the excitement, without all the hoopla. It's not bringing happiness. I need a calm life. I want a, a humble life. That's good. Obviously, calm and humble are good words. And we can maybe agree with that, that that is a form of happiness. If a person lives simply and humbly, that definitely has a lot more happiness to offer than a, than a life of, of grandiose, you know, houses and cars and jewelry and, and running after materialism. That certainly doesn't give a person happiness. That, that also brings misery. That part of the statement I would agree with. But I don't agree with the Seifa that he wrote. the pursuit of success and the constant restlessness that comes with it, I believe is the secret to happiness. That is happiness. 
I'm not saying that it should lead you to be a Balgaiva. It shouldn't lead you to, to having, you know, to forgetting who you are and all the fame and all of the... But happiness, by definition, I believe, is exactly the opposite. That pursuit of success and the restlessness that comes with it, that is the secret to happiness. Now maybe Einstein was talking to the Hamaynam, maybe to the bellhop. That was a good piece of advice. Maybe for Gayim, that's true. Maybe they don't have that neshama that needs to be this productive, that needs to have that pursuit of success. Maybe they could be mistapic b'moet. Maybe just having a calm, simple life is the answer. I don't know. But for a Yid, that pursuit of success, of excellence, of accomplishing more and more, better and better, of making myself, my family, my community, my world a greater place, that is what happiness is by definition. That is tzmicha. A person that's just mistapik b'mud, I don't want to do that, I don't want success, I just want to be left alone and have a, have a simple life. You could accomplish very little, but you won't be happy. Because the neshama inside needs success. It needs accomplishment. It needs tzmicha. It needs to grow. And if it's not getting that diet of ambition and pursuit of success, it's not going to be happy. It might be simple, it might be very austere. It might be very away from, from anything fancy. That's true, but that's not happiness. Happiness comes when you say, I have to accomplish a certain goal. I want to be a Talmud Chacham, and I'm going to work towards that goal every single day. I want to be closer to the Rebbe so I'm going to work towards that goal. I'm going to be a doctor and I'm not going to be happy until I accomplish that. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be successful. Something. You have to be on the route to success. Accomplishment. That's what causes happiness. And if you don't have that, if a Jew doesn't have that feeling of productivity, and he's just like coasting and just resting on his laurels of yesterday, he's not happy. There's an amazing Chassam Seifer. The Chassam Seifer writes that there was a person who committed suicide, Rahman al-Litzan. And when we think about people that commit suicide, we think that they must have had very troubled lives. And obviously they do. And what would, what would drive a person to take their own life unless they were deeply distressed probably major financial problems, major social issues, major tsaris, daigas, nisyainas, terrible, that would drive a person to take his own life. Listen to the words of the Chassam Seifer, what happened with this particular case. He left a letter, this person who committed suicide, stating that the reason he took his life was because he was wealthy, had everything he wanted, 
and had no struggles. And that was his greatest problem. Life was perfect for him. He didn't have any reason to wake up in the morning. There was nothing to fix because everything was well. And that took away all his joy in life. It's amazing, the Chassam Seifer. A person could take his own life by living what we consider the dream. Who doesn't want that? Who wouldn't take that if offered? If I tell you I'll give you a beautiful home with a beautiful climate, some sports cars in the driveway, I'll give you all the clothing that you could ever wear, the greatest food in the world, no problems, you just go swimming all day and party all night and that's your life. Sounds great. Okay, you want to add learning, even greater, but who wouldn't take that life? You would want a life of struggles, of nisyanis, of challenges? The answer is absolutely. Because happiness is not being in a perfect state. Happiness is pursuing the perfect state. Even in the Declaration of Independence, the founding fathers of this country were brilliant. We know that they were brilliant. And they didn't write life, liberty, and happiness. It was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Attaining happiness is not what we want. We don't want happiness. We want to be pursuing happiness. We want to be in a state of the chase. Once you get what you're chasing after, now you need a new chase. Because we need to pursue things. We need to have goals, to have dreams, and then to attain them. Once we attain them, we don't rest on our laurels. We look for the next level, the next technological breakthrough, the next sugyan shas lahavdil, the next sefer, the next yeshiva, the next kailo. Never be happy. Never say, okay, I did it, and now I'm potter. You don't want to be potter. You're not looking to avoid challenges and nisyanis. You don't want nisyanis. We don't daven for nisyanis. But when we're engaged in nisyanis, when we have these challenges, embrace them and try as best you can to overcome them because that's life. Chanukah is the yantif of potential. Hanukkah is the one yantif that you actually see the great potential that a yid has. How do you see that? Look at what Matisya Ubanov were able to accomplish. They were a handful of tzaddikim and they were able to go and do battle with the mighty Syrian Greek army. If you can imagine the Rabbeim in this yeshiva, let's say, or even better, the Mayetzas Kedayle Atayra, and they are going, and they are going to have a plan to attack and to do war against the United States military, for whatever reason. Could you imagine that, like how that meeting would look? You know, who's, 
who's going to take down one Navy SEAL? Which Godel, which Rebbe, which, which Mashkiach? Who's going to do that? And let alone thousands of them and tens of thousands of Marines and army guys and all these guys, you know, their muscles are bigger than the entire body of the Godel. How is this going to happen? Is it normal even to think about such a thing? It's like it would be ludicrous. It would be like no one would even make a movie about it because it wouldn't start. The plot has no emiss to it. But yet this is what happened. It was Rabim biyad ma'atim, Tumayim biyad tahirim, Zaydim biyad That's exactly how it played out. How did it happen? I don't know. I wasn't there. But this is what happened. They were able to take down the entire Syrian Greek army. What does this show? Obviously, it's miraculous. But it shows also how much a human being is able to do. The potential that we all have within is so far and above, beyond our wildest dreams that you would be shocked even to know 1% of your capabilities. They say that the human brain is so underutilized. If you would know like the percentage of the human brain that we are using, you would be amazed. It's like, you know, you know if you have a, an iPhone, which I don't have. But if you would have an iPhone, a lot of people don't really know what the iPhone can accomplish. But, you know, most people just use it for ways and for uh, using it for phone and, you know, maybe some uh, WhatsApp or whatever. You could probably put a man on the moon with that iPhone. I think the, the, the chip in the iPhone is greater than the, than the powerful, than, the, than, than, the, than, the, than the, the chip that was, put, that was used by NASA in the 1960s to put people on the moon. That little chip in the iPhone... But we don't use it. You know, you use it for, you know, you use it for, for playing games and for doing, uh, you know, Candy Crush or whatever these things are. That's what you're using it for. But you, you should just know that that thing, that little thing, has more potential than anything that you could probably ever accomplish in a in hundred lives. There's so much in that thing if you would know what to do with it. And that's how the human brain is. We, we don't use even a mashu. We never even bothered you know, reading the instruction manual for the human brain. But if we would know what the human brain is capable of, how much eon, how much hasmada, how much creativity, how much, ha, ha, what, what we could really do, you would be shocked. You would be shocked by the amount of, of terror that you, could learn, that you can keep in this brain. How many hours you could sit and learn and how much creativity you could produce how deep a thought could be, how much eon, chidushe Torah, a person could write, how deep our kavanis and davening could be. The human brain is phenomenal. The potential is so great. Physically, the human being is amazing. Rabbin biad ma'atim. Hanukkah is a time that you get a little bit of a glimpse. If you understand the storyline, you can get a little bit of a glimpse of what I could do with my life. If Matisyo Bonav were able to beat down the mighty Syrian Greek army, could you imagine what I could do in learning, in davening, in tzedakah, in chesed, in taira, and lahavdil, in, in inyanad, da'alma, 
I could do anything I want. The only reason why I'm not is because I'm either lazy or because I've been so told by people and conditioned to believe that I can't do it, so I, I, stop, I stop believing that I can. There is so much potential that we have that's untapped. There's a reservoir inside of us that if we could only understand it, we would be able to do amazing things. The things that you see are being done in the world, the technology that's being produced, the science, the breakthroughs, are the products of people, and they're not all Jews. It could be Gayim as well, of course. But these are people that said, I'm not going to settle for being, for being a regular person. I want to, I know that I could do something greater. I want to accomplish something that the world has never seen before. I want to help society in a way that, that I know that I can. Now, it doesn't mean to say that every single person has to be a Nobel Peace Prize winner or a Nobel uh, laureate, laureate of some sort, or else they're not a success in life. It could be a very local success story. It could be that you were only able to finish one Rashi, and now you can finish a Rashi and a Tysis. That's, that's huge. But set your goals on finishing that Tysis. On learning from, instead of learning a half an hour a day or one hour a day, you learn six to eight hours a day. That's also an amazing accomplishment. Even not six to eight hours a day. How about three hours a day? You should make a kiddush on Shabbos if you learn one hour a day of real learning. The accomplishments that we could set our goals on are so great, but we have to realize who we are, what our potential is, and then if we're not happy, we have to realize it's because, not because I'm doing too much, but I'm doing too little. Productivity is the secret to success. Hanukkah is a time that we can recognize the human potential. Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam. That neshama that I keep talking about that drives the Jew to success that the world has never seen before. That's Ner Hashem. The Nisham of a person is the Ner Hashem. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the Ein Saif. He's the Kal Yachal, and we have that in us. We also have that ability to be touching eternity, touching Nitzchias every single day of our life, doing what seems to be impossible, but it's not impossible for a Jew. Because we have the Rabbi within us, Kaviyachal. We have that Ner Hashem, which is Nishmas Adam. HaKadosh Baruch Hu ignites every day a fire within us called the Neshama. And every day He reignites that, 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 that Neshama in us. Kozman Neshama Bikirbi The Neshama is a light that's burning and burning and burning. There's a famous story of the Rabbi Salanter that he passed by once late at night a, uh, like a shoemaker. And it was already 10 o'clock at night and the shoemaker was sitting and he was uh, you know, fixing shoes, a cobbler. And Rizal Sanda says, hey, you know, why, are you, why are you so, you're, you're learning, you're, 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 you're fixing shoes so late at night, why don't you go home and go to sleep? What are you waiting for? He says, as soon as the candle burns out, that's when I'll go to sleep. But as long as the candle is burning, I'm going to be doing my work. 
And Rabbi Salaswamdi used to use that as a metaphor for the rest of his life. That when I have a candle burning inside of me, as long as it's ignited, when I have a neshama and talk to takes that neshama away, I have work to do. I have to be productive. I have to accomplish. And that recognition of the neshama, the power that the neshama has, and that need to succeed in life so that my neshama is happy and satisfied and content. That is what Hanukkah is all about. That's the Rabbin Biad Matim, the great story of Jewish potential. And I believe that that might be a kavana on Beishamai. Beishamai is saying, don't just do one and then two and then three. Understand when you light the Menaira that the Menaira represents the greatness of the Rabbi Shalom and by extension the greatness that we have within. The Ner Hashem is Nishmas Adam. The Kedusha Saneris represents the Kedusha of our own Neshama. And you have to recognize already on day one, don't just light one, eight. There's going to be eight days that that one candle burns and recognize that that's you. You have that neshama within you and recognize that you have to tap into all of that potential. The second night, there were seven days that remained. And until the candle burns out, until there's left with nothing, you have a job to do in life. You have to keep on accomplishing. Don't settle for mediocrity. Do not say, okay, it's enough. I did enough already. No, the day that you stop accomplishing, the day that you stop fulfilling life's goals are the days, is the day that basically you extinguish your candle. You don't have forever, and that's what the decreasing number of candles symbolizes. When you're young, you have eight candles. You guys have eight candles. So much potential. You have an entire life. You're at such a great point in your life. Untapped potential, sheer potential. That's what this room is. Anything that you want to be, you could be. Anything. You're living in the greatest time in human history. All doors are open to you. Any field that you want to go into, you can go into and you could, you could thrive. You could learn. You could daven. You could shtaig. You, can, you could be a tzaddik. You could be a chassid. You could be... Whatever you want to be, you could be. There's no stopping you. You have eight candles. See that on the first night, I have eight candles. That's amazing. On the second night, you still have seven candles. Even on the last night, a person might be 95, 98, 100 years old. He still has a candle. His candle means that he has potential to work. He's not retiring. He's working, he's learning, he's steiging. Remember, I was once on a seed program in California. Two summers in a row, I went to California in a seed program. And when I was your age, and it was, it was, we had a great time. I have really good friends that I went with, and we had a blast. But we also, you know, did what we were supposed to a little bit. Also, we learned with people. And on the last night of one of the seed programs, we made a... Um, like a Sudas Preda, they made us in the shul. And there was an old man that came over, he used to come to some of my shirim that I was giving that summer. 
And he was crying to me. It was like maybe a man in his late 80s. Very nice man. And he said to me, he says, could, I, could you come over in the corner with me? I just want to talk to you for a few minutes. I said, of course. He started crying to me. He says, I want to be young like you again. He says, I have all the money in the world. I'm a rich man. He says, how can I get my youth back? I just want to be young again. I don't want to be this old man. I don't want to be somebody that's over and bottle, that doesn't have what to look forward to anymore, that all the potential is, 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 is drained. I want to be young like you. Where can I buy my youth? There's nothing to say to him. Learn that lesson from him. Understand that you are young. You are eight candles. You have such potential. Don't ever for a minute forget your potential. Beishamah is saying, always be aware of your full potential. Do not settle for one candle on the first night and then two candles on the second night. That is not dramatic enough. That does not show you in real time how great you are. On the first night, yes, it's anticlimactic. Who cares? All eight candles. Let's see it. Understand now that your neshama is so strong, is so vibrant, it could do anything. And it doesn't last forever. I always think of this on, on Sukkot. On Sukkot, we know that the Arbaminim are connected uh, different you know, different types of Jews, and it's Klal Yisrael, and it's... And what happens? You know, the first day of... of, of and also, you know, I think the, the Rush says that the reason why we say Hal Shalem on uh, every day of Sukkot is because it's from the Lulav and Esther, Kal and Neshama, like the Lulav and Esther has the Neshama. It's like, it's like you're, you're taking like a... The Lulav and Esther is like what's driving the Halal. And a, and a Lulav Ayavesh is puzzle. And you have to like, so I, I always think to myself, like the first night of, the first day of Sukkot, you take out your lulav and esther, it gets so fresh, so beautiful, spent good money on it, and you have the lulav, and you have the beautiful aravis, and you have the adasim, and they're just perfect, and the esther is, you know, still nice and yellow, and then what happens? As the days of Sukkot pass, you know, all of a sudden the aravis start to get brown, and if you're really good, you buy another one, you strip it in, but like, you know, generally people don't go to that effort. It's brown, and the hadassim start falling out, and the lulav starts already, you know, looking yeshivish, you know, by the middle of Yantiv. It's not, the esrug already starts getting like these brown spots, and you're like holding it. The first day, you know, you knew there was one brown spot, so you're holding it there so no one would see it. Now you have to like hold, have to cup the whole esrug so nobody sees anything on it. And so it goes, one day after another day. And I always think like, this is our life. When you're young, you have so much. Everything is so beautiful. So much potential. And the neshama is, is powerful, glorious. And then as the days of the life go by, it gets, it's it just goes down. And people later in life, they hop that, I had so much potential, why did I waste it? I was so like timid, I was so shy, I was not taking chances in life enough. So I settled for mediocrity and I did this and I did that. And I, but I should have done so much more. And that's true. 
And that's what this Shmuz is about. Because I'm telling you now, don't ever come back to me later and say, I should have done more. I'm telling you now, don't think that mediocrity is a good thing. It's good to be, in the words of Albert Einstein, it's very good to be calm and humble. But the rest of it, I think, is wrong. That the pursuit of success and the constant restlessness that comes with it is not a source of major happiness that's wrong. Happiness comes from accomplishment. Do not be lazy. If you have a dream, then do it. Don't settle. I could, um, you know what, I'm going to take the easy route. Don't take the easy road. Spend a little extra time, a little extra effort, and do exactly what you want to do with your life. Because you don't get a second chance. And when it's later in life, the candle is still burning, you still have some potential, but it's, it ain't the same as it is when you're young. And that's the message, I think, of Beishamai. Beishamai is saying, just look at your potential. First night of Hanukkah, everyone's excited. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Hanukkah. Eight candles, right away. In all its glory, you get to see how great you are. Don't wait until later to find out how great you are. Find it out early on in life, and then as you go through life with more pursuit of happiness, with more setting goals for yourself, with more accomplishments, that's the secret of happiness. And that is what Hanukkah is all about, the notion that the human experience is one of Rabbim Biad Ma'atim. I could accomplish things that no one else in the world can. HaKadosh Baruch Hu put me here for a very specific purpose and a mission that I have to figure out and then I have to make a strategy to accomplish that. And the pursuit of that goal is exactly what will cause us the happiness that we all want. Mitzvah Hashem, we should be zeichet to have a lichtig Hanukkah, a beautiful Hanukkah, and let the lessons of Hanukkah, of both Beishameh and Beishillel, shine through, and every night, every night, again and again, just remind ourselves of all the potential that we have within us, and that should excite us, that should animate us, that should allow us to accomplish great things in our life, and ultimately bring a Kiddushem Shamayim ultimately bring the Geula Shlema the Meherah Amen Ba'amein. Have a good chance.